So we now finally come to the big chunk of the book of Job, chapters 4 through 26, which I've entitled The Great Debate. And we're going to read a summary of that debate in a couple of minutes, but first of all, let's uh, pray. Holy Spirit, you are the teacher sent by our Lord Jesus, the teacher, from this all-wise, infinite, personal God who is Yahweh, the Lord God of the covenant, the true and living God, the creator and sustainer of all things, the judge who always does what is right, this God with whom we have been dealing even in our study of Job. And we thank you that now at this advanced point in the history of Revelation, uh, you use the whole Bible, Genesis to Revelation, to instruct us in those things that we might uh, that we need to know in order that we might live lives that are truly blessed on every level. Um, and so we ask you to continue that blessing for us this morning as we attend to your word. And I do pray for my audience here that you would give them grace uh, to uh, track on what we're saying, fight off the sleepies, help me to be as clear and uh, interesting uh, from a delivery standpoint as I can be, and then feed us again uh, with your good food. And we pray the same for the children. Probably the uh, classroom discipline is going to be a little bit more difficult as they're more weary and frazzled. So be with those teachers and grant them a double measure of your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the initial complaint that we read yesterday on Job's part in chapter 3, this lamentation when he finally unburdens himself of all of his grief and sorrow, that finally sets off this lengthy debate between Job and his comforters. And we think about them as friends, as comforters, as counselors. Um, after the seven days of silence, uh, a silence of pity, perhaps a silence of implied accusation, and Job's eruption, now they begin to respond. We want to think about these friends a moment. Let's read verses 11 and 12 from, or actually it's verse 11 only from chapter 2. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil, that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Neamathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and to comfort him. So we have Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Neamathite. So the first thing to notice is these are not some of Job's local chums from down at the pub who within the circle of a, a city or a village heard about Job's miseries and uh, decided to go down the street and sit with him and see what they could do. These men have traveled some considerable distance to get to Job and uh, it might be better to think of them as, as kind of professional friends. 
Um, you know, over the last 50 years, uh, there have been lots of conferences. Some of you have been to conferences, maybe a Banner of Truth conference, maybe a Ligonier conference, uh, uh, the International Congress on the Bible back in the day. And people like R.C. Sproul and, uh, and uh, J.I. Packer and some other notables uh, would speak together. And they were a, colli a, a co kind of collegial friendship, but they didn't live next door to each other. They knew each other personally. So they're kind of noted theologians who have a kind of philosophical or theological friendship. Now imagine one of them had a Job-like experience, and from all over the country come these friends to help Job. So it's really not primarily like we do. You know, somebody's suffering, we come alongside, we put our arm around them, we pray for them, we listen to them, and we try to offer words of com uh, comfort. This is kind of a more intellectually challenging, more definitive. So it's not a debate in the usual sense, but it's more like that than simply some neighbors coming around a, a local sufferer to, to help them out. Uh, Timon was known in the ancient world, according to the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, as uh, known for its world-class scholars and intellectuals. Uh, actually, Timon is mentioned a couple of other places in the Bible, Jeremiah 49, verse 7, uh, a prophecy concerning Edom. So again, that locates perhaps these people in, in the general area. Uh, it says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Is wisdom no more in Teman? Has counsel perished from the prudent? Has their wisdom vanished? So just like we might reference Cambridge or Oxford or the Ivy League as noted for intellectual rigor and scholarship, however much that reputation is no longer deserved, so Teman is a place where you would expect to find some brilliant intellectuals. Then in Obed, Obadiah, excuse me, uh, verse 8, will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. So these are learned men, able men, and they are on some level acquainted with Job and eager to come to him to offer whatever help they might. And as we saw yesterday, initially they sit down and listen. They're silent for a week and then they hear Job lament and they are so appalled by what he has to say that they're finally provoked uh, by Job's apparent impiety and unbelief to begin to answer him, and they do so at length. So what I've had inserted in your uh, booklets is my summary of this great debate. Now, it's a little long, but it's not as long as the great debate, and I wanted it in the booklet, if we could get it in the booklet, so you can follow along, but I'm going to read it because this is where we usually get lost in the weeds. We start into this section, 
And there are three rounds of interchange. The last one's cut short. Zophar doesn't take his third turn. And after each speech, there is a rebuttal by Job. And so we get that kind of cycle going. So let's read over this just so that we can kind of see the forest. And then we'll look at a few trees briefly along the way. But I mostly want to try and help us understand um, what's the argument of the friends and what's wrong with it. And then how is Job's answer true but inadequate so that we can set ourselves up for what comes later. Okay, so starting and in the parenthesis then, those are the chapter numbers, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, so forth. Eliphaz begins by recalling that Job has readily helped and comforted others in affliction with his counseling. Now he should be prepared to take his own advice. God is just and does not destroy the godly. Yet how can a man be truly in, uh, right uh, in the right before God. What Job must do is appeal to God for deliverance, for God is able. God's correction is not to be despised, and he will deliver from discipline. Take his corrections to heart. Job responds that what he wants from God is death. His hope is overwhelmed. He finds the comfort of his friends unreliable and useless. Show me what I have done wrong, he challenges. Time moves so fast, and more so when one is afflicted by God, so he protests. He desires only to die. He asks God what he has done, why God will not forgive him. Bildad says Job must not question the justice of God, nor accuse him. What has happened is no doubt deserved, yet God will restore again if Job asks. The life of the godless is fragile and precarious. This is very true, Job replies, but how can a man be right with God? No one is able to contend with him even when they have a case, as Job does, so why bother? Even if Job was innocent, which he says he is, God would not listen. Paradoxically, Job claims to be guilty and yet blameless, but in the final analysis it doesn't matter, for God equally destroys the guilty and the innocent. If there is injustice in the world, it must be God's doing, for he alone is in control. Job's only reason for complaint is for the sake of the friends who will think Job guilty if he does not protest his innocence. Since there is no way to argue with God, God will not give full expression, uh, Job will not give full expression to his complaint. He will only plead with God to tell him what he has done wrong. Will God destroy what he has created? There's no winning against God. Job asks God to leave him alone so that he may have a moment of joy and then die. Zophar asks Job how he can speak to God in this way. God should answer and silence Job. Job is in no position to question God. If he would only trust in God totally and flee from sin, he would live without shame and be restored. Job replies that he knows what Zophar says is true. Who doesn't? He is embarrassed at his shame, though he knows he is right and blameless. The wicked, however, live in peace and security. Creation will teach that God has done this. 
God is absolute in wisdom and power, as everyone knows. He calls upon God to answer his questions and charges. He sets the rules with God. Life, he says, is short and limited by God's decree. Is death the end for man? He believes in God's forgiveness and in the resurrection to come, yet again, perhaps not. Eliphaz asks Job, so here's round two, if God is wise, why speak nonsense? Job is hindering piety and merely justifying himself. What man is there that could be justified before God? The wisdom of the fathers says that the wicked suffer for accusing God and rebelling against him. Job replies that God has delivered him into trouble, yet he is without offense. Job's intercessor is in heaven. Job represents a stumbling block to the godly, yet they will remain firm. But for Job, all is hopeless. Bildad affirms again that it is the wicked that are subject to God's judgment. Job replies that if he is guilty, he wants to know of what. He pleads with God that he has been abused, yet there is no answer. He asks for pity. He knows that God is there and that one day beyond the grave, he will be judged and vindicated in the body. Zophar again appeals to the ancient pattern observed and taught by wisdom. The judgment and afflictions of God come upon the wicked. Job observes that the wicked do well in this world, though they will have nothing to do with God. Even if judgment comes later upon his children, he will not face it, for he is gone in death. According to Job, the received wisdom is foolishness. Round three. Eliphaz finally brings specific charges of wrongdoing against Job and calls him to submit to God in repentance, for that will open the way to restoration. Job says that if he knew where to go to be heard by God, then God would receive him and hear his case. Though he can't seek out God, God knows Job is being tested. And when the trial is completed, he will be like gold, for Job is righteous. Why doesn't God give immediate judgment here on earth? Evil runs rampant everywhere, unchecked, yet he acknowledges that there is a judgment at death. Bildad again declares that God has established his order and rule in heaven, and that no man can be just in his sight. Job again accuses his friends of useless comfort and counsel. He points to the mighty wonder of God's works and asks, who then can understand the thunder of his power? Since Zophar has nothing more to say, apparently Job begins his final summation. So there you have kind of my version of the uh, reduced essence of that long conversation. And, and as you read it that way and put all that together, it seems such a jumble, kind of a rat's nest of truth and half-truths and omissions and misapplications and errors and frustration. Sounds like lots of conversations, doesn't it? Sounds like a lot of theological debates, I'll tell you that. So let's start off by noticing some things that Job and his helpers have in common, presuppositions that they share. 
And first we remind ourselves that Job, at least in, its, in the events that are recorded in this book, may well be the oldest book, at least the oldest incident in the Bible. It precedes the Pentateuch. And when you think about how much we learn from the books of Moses about God and about creation and about human nature and about providence and about the fall and then the beginnings of the history of redemption, just imagine not having any of that. Or at least we don't know that there was any of that available. And so, again, it's easy to judge what these people say from our vantage point and say, well, this, this is so obvious, but they're still operating at a very early stage in human history and in the history of redemption. Job and his counselors seem to have very little in the way of special verbal revelation upon which to base their ideas. And it's kind of a tantalizing question to, to ask where did they get the wisdom that they had, partial and uh, uh, spotty as it might be. Nevertheless, there are several theological ideas that Job and his friends do share in common. And some of them, at least when we highlight them, are, are interesting and, and even puzzling. Um, and I make this point because, as I've said, even at this early stage, there's nothing said in this early stage of re Revelation that isn't perfectly consistent with all of the later revelation all the way into the New Testament. Sidebar, many criticisms of the Old Testament since, let's say, the 17th century have argued on the basis of an evolutionary view of Israel's faith. So you go from pantheism to animism to polytheism to monotheism to ethical monotheism to what finally turns out to be Yahwism as they like to call it that is the full-blown theology of Moses and the prophets well and so then they read the New Testament in terms of well here's some evidence of ancient spirit worship and here's uh, uh, evidence of residual polytheism, even in the, you know, all of that stuff. I mean, these guys draw paychecks, they get PhDs, they have students, but it's wacky. As we take the Bible seriously and go way back to the beginning, as we'll see, those foundation, and I think it's interesting to me that even outside the stream of special revelation, in those early days, there was a lot more in what we would call the common understanding of life outside of the redeemed line, and that then deteriorates uh, as time goes on. Anyway, I'll give you a chance to think about that. You can ask a question about it all. That's about all I know, so don't ask me very hard questions. Um, but we don't have this view of a development through various stages of religious understanding. What's there in the theology of the Pentateuch to the degree that it's evident in Job is there in Job as well. 
So, what are these presuppositions? And the first one is, is obvious and yet surprising. Uh, all of these only one true and living God. There's not a hint in Job of polytheism. There's no reference to the, the gods that were worshipped in Canaan uh, and are identified later in the prophets, particularly Baal and Ashtoreth and the others. Uh, all of them, when they talk about God, are talking about the same God. And they're using the same kind of language about God. They all refer to God as Shaddai, the Almighty. And so this one true and living God is seen as the creator of all things, as the sustainer and governor of all things. Um, and it's perfectly consistent then with the God who revealed himself to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, although apparently these wise men are outside of that stream of special revelation. Secondly, they all affirm together the transcendence, the sovereignty of God, and the imminence, the involvement of God in the affairs of men. So there's no hint of anything like deism. Okay, there's a creator God, he winds up the universe, throws it out in space, and it runs all by itself. No, they all talk about God's interfacing with his human creatures and dealing with them in personal terms. So again, perfectly consistent with what we learn in the Pentateuch and in the prophets. On the one hand, God is above creation, and he overrules creation. At the same time, he is directly involved in individual lives, and of course, the focus of their attention is Job's individual life. They all understand that in some sense, they're living before the face of this great God. Just a couple of examples in chapter 11, verse 7, Zophar is speaking, and he says, can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol. What can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. Now, that could come right out of Isaiah. This is God in his infinity and in his eternality. Chapter 23, verse 8, Behold, I go forward, but he is not there, and backward, but I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. But he knows the way that I take. This is Job speaking. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. So one true and living God who is both sovereign over all and directly involved with his creatures. Thirdly, they all agree that God is not only almighty, but perfectly just and holy. There's no disagreement between Job and his friends regarding the ethical character of this one true and living God. And that he upholds as we said yesterday, the moral order of the universe. And this is a point that's repeated so often, and you even saw it in my brief summary, that we don't need to cite individual passages. The ethical character of the Almighty is the unshakable theological cornerstone of all right thinking. 
about the relationship between God and humans. Again, to quote from Genesis, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? And then a fourth thing that they share in common, this God is merciful. He will forgive sin and he will restore those who are truly penitent. Eliphaz says in chapter 5, verse 17, Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore despise not the discipline of the Almighty, for he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. That could be Solomon, right? In Proverbs. Or the author to the book of Hebrews, for that matter. So these counselors want to draw on the collective wisdom, the consensus, the theological consensus in this world. And again, we don't know exactly what the whole cultural and, and social setting is, but there's at least enough unanimity that even though the friends disagree radically with Job, on a deep foundational level, they're all operating from the same set of premises. Now let's think about how Job and his counselors differ in the way they apply these common principles, these presuppositions to Job's particular case, his own life situation. They're trying, the friends are trying to undermine and break down Job's claim to integrity and bring about in him a conviction of sin which they hope will lead to repentance. That's their purpose. <clears throat> um, we talk about, well, we don't, not over coffee, but there is a, there's a kind of an element of apologetic activity that's called alenctics, and it's the, if we want to call it, it's the science of convincing someone of sin. Um, in uh, uh, J.H. Bavink's uh, book on the science of missions, he has a whole chapter on elenctics in the setting of particularly foreign missions work. So if you go to the Czech Republic or you go to Japan or you go to the Sudan, what sort of things on a principial level do you have to have in mind in order to try and bring those people to the conviction of sin? I mean, you heard Jerry, or if you, if you heard Jerry last night in Maryland, uh, you know, he said the Czechs are tough nuts to crack. And on the one hand, of course, unless there's regeneration, those nuts are never going to be cracked. But then the question is, what's the best way to reach them with God's word in a manner that will bring them to conviction? Um, and, well, I don't want to go any farther down there, but that's the idea. So these men are practicing elenctics. They're trying to find good, sound, theological, philosophical reasons to press Job to acknowledge his sin and repent of it so that he might be forgiven. But as things escalate, as is often the pushback and then more pushback and then more pushback, they end up accusing him of deliberate hypocrisy. And in that, of course, there's a there's an implicit self-righteousness. Job is a sinner in the way that they themselves are not sinners. So we'll parse this out a little bit. 
they emphasize the principle of retribution. Um, and that is a biblical principle. It's grounded, again, in the Pentateuch, uh, in the form of the sanctions of the covenant that uh, God punishes those who rebel against him, and he blesses those who are faithful and walk in submission to him in love and obedience. Um, a major point in the book of Deuteronomy, for example, there's a whole chapter, chapter 28, that is devoted to the blessings of covenant faithfulness and the curses that come upon covenant breaking and disobedience. And so that idea that God, in terms of this moral order, his own ethical commitment to that which is right, is going to bless or he's going to punish. Um, it's there in the other wisdom literature. For example, Proverbs 2.22, the wicked will be cut off from the land and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. Or Psalm 112 even, praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and wretches are in his house. So to emphasize this principle of retribution is not wrong. The question is, how are they applying it? They've missed some very important things. They seem to approach this matter um, with a kind of a quantitative view of sin. The more you sin, the greater the punishment. The less you sin, the milder the punishment. And if you are being blessed, you're, you're probably okay. Um, Hengstenberg says, Sin and suffering are measured out by God as it were ounce for ounce. So much sin, so much suffering. One man is just so much better than another as he is happier. He who is as unfortunate as Job must assuredly be not merely a sinner, but a criminal, end quote. Their view of sin is also largely externalized. They emphasize acts more than the root attitude of heart. And as things move on, they, uh, they begin to fish more and more for what might be the hidden sin that is finally going to, to uh, uh, bring Job to repentance. I did this once very dramatically years ago in my first church. Young man in the church <clears throat> asked me to come over. He had been sick for a week or so, really depressed, wanted to talk. And, uh, and I could tell there was something that he wanted to talk about, but he couldn't bring himself to mention it. So... I just shot an arrow as far off the line as I could possibly imagine and asked him if he was practicing homosexuality. And he said, yes. I was fishing. And I thought I was fishing clear out of the pond, but God made it hit target. Well, this is sort of like that, although it's motivated probably by frustration. They keep, so they make more and more accusations. You know, it's like throw it against the wall and see what sticks. 
So if you look at chapter 22, for example, uh, verse 5, is not your evil abundant? There is no end of your iniquities. And then they start getting specific. Verse 6, you have exacted pledges of your brothers for nothing. That's a very specific accusation of wrongdoing. Will it stick? Well, we'll see. You have stripped the naked of their clothing. Verse 7, you have given no water to the weary to drink. You have withheld bread from the hungry. Again, very, very serious and specific accusations. Sorry I'm so loud, I woke the baby. It's all this amplification. I don't usually use a microphone, so I yell. And then when I get a microphone, it's... Sorry. Although, my wife will tell you, I can wake babies without a microphone. Verse 9, you have sent widows away empty, and the arms of the fatherless were crushed. Therefore, because you have done these things, question mark, question mark, question mark, therefore, snares are all around you, and sudden terrors overwhelm you, or darkness, so that you cannot see, and a flood of water comes over you. So that's the way it goes with these men who are trying to bring Job to conviction. There must be something there. We have to find it so that he will finally admit it and then we'll be able to achieve our goal. Blessings and curses are portioned out in their mind in accordance with the presumed seriousness of the sin. That was Hengstenberg's point. So the core truth that God does enforce his will through blessings and cursings. I mean, that we can't deny that without denying the teaching of Scripture. That core truth is falsified by their application of it, and particularly their failure to see it in the larger context, which we'll come to in a moment. So that's part of what's behind when God finally says to these friends, you have not spoken what is right and evokes God's anger. They appear, uh, they apply the principle of retribution exclusively and absolutely in their interpretation of history in general and of Job's personal experience in, in particular. So the principle of retribution is like a, a procrustean bed, you know, they, that's a, from ancient mythology there was a king who had a bed and anything anybody who slept on his bed if their foot hang out they cut off the foot if their arms hung out they cut off the so it came in philosophy now it's like I have a paradigm and I put all of the facts into it and any fact that doesn't fit the paradigm just gets eliminated so Dr. Bonson used to say you know if you say my net will catch all the fish in the sea and so they scoop up their net, and then you say, well, here's another fish that you didn't catch in your net, and they will say, well, that's not a fish. Because by definition, my... So, it's got to be retribution, pure and simple, and anything else that might be going on in their mind is irrelevant. So, so that's the problem. You see, we read what they say, and a lot of what they say is true. So what's the problem? Well, a partial truth 
or a truth misapplied is just as dangerous as a lie or a falsehood. You see, when we start thinking this way, we're thinking like wise people. One of the first things that a wise person understands is it's usually not as easy as it seems. And if we think it's simple, nice boxes that will handle everything, we will be in trouble. So for them, going back to this idea of the problem of evil, there is no problem of evil because if you sin, you suffer, and therefore if you suffer, you're sinful. End of story. People who suffer deserve to suffer in their view. It's interesting, G.K. Chesterton says, if prosperity is regarded as the reward of virtue, it will be regarded as the symptom of virtue. If prosperity is regarded as the reward of virtue, it will be regarded as the symptom of virtue. Men will leave off the heavy task of making good men successful. They will adopt the easier task of making our successful men good. So they failed completely to see how God could be glorified through the suffering of a truly faithful and innocent man. It just was not anywhere on the radar screen. Now we might just ask, parenthetically, since they didn't have the prologue to Job, any more than Job had the prologue to Job, how could they understand that? We'll have to leave that for further pondering. All right, um, okay, let's move on then to Job's perspective on his sufferings. He has a sustained confidence that his afflictions are unwarranted, at least within that schema, that he has done something so terrible that it warrants that kind of curse, that kind of judgment. We've already noted that Job understands that the Lord has almighty power and that he is perfectly righteous. He also understands that God is the ultimate source of his calamities. He must be, since he alone is the sovereign creator and ruler. Again, we cited the Westminster Confession of Faith, not by bear permission, and here again, it's in his speeches, in chapter 6, verse 4, for the arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. Chapter 9, he crushes me. He multiplies my wounds. If it is a contest of strength, behold, he is mighty. Chapter 13, you put my feet in the stocks and watch all my paths. You set a limit for the soles of my feet. Chapter 16, he broke me apart. He seized me and dashed me in pieces. I am his target. And again, that chapter 19, he has kindled his wrath against me. 
and counts me as his adversary. So unlike modern people who say, you know, God's doing the best he can, and if you're suffering, he'd like to help you out, but there are limits to his ability. Job's not going to go there. He knows that God is sovereign, knows that God is righteous, believes himself to be innocent of any wrongdoing that would warrant this, and that's what creates the agonizing dilemma that Job wrestles with. Through the course of this long debate, then, Job grows more and more insistent. He demands more and more that God show up or that he be brought into the presence of God so God can accuse Job directly. He doesn't want to listen to his friends and their accusations, maybe not even the accusations of his own conscience. He wants to hear from God himself. And again, that's repeated again and again in Job's rebuttals. One example, chapter 13, verse 3. But I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to argue my case with God. And yet Job maintains his integrity throughout the debate, and he calls upon God to judge him, believing that that will mean his vindication. If God judges him, then Job will not be condemned of evil doing, but he will be vindicated. So what we've already said is part of God's purpose in Job's life over against the accusation of Satan. Now Job is longing for that very same thing in light of the accusations of these friends, these counselors. Job wants vindication. God's going to give him vindication. On that level, that theme Job's going to finally get what he is begging for. But that, of course, as we've also said, is not the whole story. God's got some things to do in Job in the process. And so Job says, I know, uh, excuse me, he says, I know God knows that I am not guilty. Chapter 10, verse 7 and in chapter 27, near the end of the debate, in verse 5, far be it from me to say that you are right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. I hold fast my righteousness and will not let it go. We could pause here and say, recognizing our sin, but under the barrage of, let's say, human accusations against us, could we say with Job, go ahead, expose me as much as you want. My integrity will stand the judgment of men and even in that regard, the judgment of God. Or we would have to say, boy, if I'm accused, I hope they don't do much background search on that one because I will be exposed. Uh, it's, and we'll come back to that in, in a bit um, when we talk about Job's summation. So, that, all of that is exactly why the counsel of Job's friends troubles him so much. The paradigm they are operating from doesn't fit in his case, even though he agrees the principle is certainly true. And and we just remind ourselves again, in doing that, Job is not claiming to be without sin. 
There are places, and I mentioned them yesterday, where he acknowledges his natural sinfulness. There is a need for atonement, and it was there implicit in the sacrifices that he offered on behalf of his children. Again, we just think if someone pleads their righteousness, they might, must be saying that they are innocent before God. That, that's not it. He's saying, I haven't done what would be deserving of such, um, such punishment, such clinging. Nor is Job clinging to a merely outward display of righteousness, so that he's really a hypocrite, but he puts on a good front, which is, again, what his friends finally accuse him of. Job is a heart believer. We just read him, uh, we just read that he was saying, I hold fast my righteousness and will not let it go. My heart does not reproach me for any of my days. Job understands that the law of God has a deep inwardness to it. It's not just interested in deeds and in words, but in the attitude of the heart. And that's the way he lives his life. Within the context of God's covenant of grace, God's law is an expression of a heart love for God and a heart devotion to walk in His ways. That's why the Old Testament speaks always of law, not in negative terms, but in positive terms. This is the way covenant people uh, manifest their desire to live in a manner that pleases God. Gustav Ehler, O-E-H-L-E-R, who is a German Old Testament theologian, points out that the nature of God as just and holy are revealed in his covenant law. Not only, on the one hand, does it bring conviction of sin for our genuine offenses, but, and this we would call the, the, the use of the law as a guide, as a, as a a direction for covenant obedience and faithfulness. It opens the door within the bonds of the covenant of love and faithfulness to a genuine innocence and a good conscience before God. In Psalm 17 and 18, there's some interesting language along these lines. Listen to this. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit from your presence let my vindication come let your eyes behold the right you have tried my heart you have visited me by night you have tested me and you will find nothing i have purposed that my mouth will not transgress now how do you read that is that hyperbole is that just kind of getting carried away with your own piety or is it possible for a covenant-keeping person to pray that kind of prayer? Say, God, search me and know me and see if there is any evil way in me. Now, we do acknowledge that even our righteousness is as filthy rags. So there's a, there's a, there's a, um, a taint of sin in everything. And yet, for those who have a heart of God, for God and cultivate a life lived to the pleasure of God, we should grow in this direction more and more and not be embarrassed by that 
claim. You know, it, it really bugs me that people so often say, um, you know, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. That smugness, that indifference to holiness is so wicked. You know, somebody who is uh, 10% imperfect and somebody who is 90% imperfect, they're all imperfect. But there's a huge difference. And in the Old Covenant, and it's there in the New Covenant too, but in the Old Covenant, the call to covenant life involves a commitment to holiness. And it's not works righteousness. It's not self-justification. It's taking the law for what it is. It's a direction. It's instruction. You want to love me, God says, here's how you do it. And that's what Job, even outside the stream of the Pentateuch, says he's trying to do. And he defies his friends and even asks God to test him, test him inwardly as well as outwardly. And we'll see more of that uh, in the next um, session as we look at his summation of his defense. A little bit more along that same theme in Psalm 18. Um, let me just say here, in, uh, in the blue Trinity hymnal, where we had our um, Psalter readings in the back, Psalm 18 is divided into two sections. But between the two sections as they're divided, these verses are omitted completely. Verse 20, the Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me and his statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him and I kept myself from my guilt. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. We're uncomfortable with that kind of language. We get more comfortable if we say, well, this is just pointing forward to Jesus. And it's about Jesus, never me. And yet here's a covenant-keeping, fallen sinner who takes these words before God. So think about it. And again, remember, bottom line, chapter 42, God himself approves of Job's defense. You have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So again, we'll get back to the theme of stretching Job, but at this point, his friends have failed to bring him to a conviction of sin that warrants this kind of judgment. And, uh, and Job knows, and he pleads that the evidence of experience do not support that definitive application of retribution alone that would prove that if Job is suffering that severely, he must be a terrible sinner and a flagrant hypocrite. Now this all comes out in the muddle of Job's own thinking, defending himself, making claims that, that uh, 
go beyond and so forth and so we'll we'll have more to say about this but let let this sink in again job is wrestling with this dilemma that paul articulates as walking by faith and not by sight he's living as a man of faith but what he sees contradicts that so how does he put those things together all right am i really six minutes before the break is it 10 30 supposed to be 10 30 or am i 14 minutes beyond <laughs> wait a minute oh it doesn't even tell me okay i think we're done let's pray and then uh, take your break come back at 11 and we'll look at job's final summary you know perry mason always has to summarize at the end of the case so job's got a summary as well of his defense lord we are challenged by job's example to be able to invite your searching judgment as a man who knows that he is lost dead in trespasses and sins at least he understands that on some level that if we sin even inadvertently there's a need for atonement whether it's for his children or for himself and so he knows that there needs to be forgiveness but beyond forgiveness there needs to be integrity an integrity that will stand before men and be vindicated by your judgment as well lord jesus told us that on that great last day he will say to us well done good and faithful servants there is that approval that vindication of flawed weak fallen but faithful covenant keeping people and we rejoice that that's part of the gospel that's part of the renewing and transforming work that jesus and the spirit have been given to accomplish in our lives forgive us for turning grace into a license to sin or maybe for more of us a license to be casual about a sin that we might admit in passing Help us to guard our consciences, to guard our hearts, to regulate our behavior by walking in the way of your commandments, for that is the way of life. You've said it yourself. Thank you for the things that we learn from this interchange, even a quick survey like this um, between Job and his counselors and his accusers, and pray that you will continue to Bless our study together in Jesus' name. Amen.